Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network servicing the literary community. It's how you reach book people on the internet. It's how you get your message out to book people on the internet. If you want to get your message out to book people on the internet, just go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary bookish sites all at once, or you can do it piecemeal and pick the sites you want. It's very user-friendly. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person and just one guy. Guys, here we right. go again. This is right. it. This is Other People. This is the Other People Show. Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm the host of the Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's very nice to be with you. I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, well, you know, what are we? We're about 15 seconds into the show. Uh, how's everything going so far? Are you having a nice experience? I just want you to be happy. That's all I'm focused on. My guest today is Sloan Crosley. Uh, and that should make you uh, very happy indeed. She was very fun to talk with. Very fun guest. Like sort of exactly, I mean, uh, at least it was, she was kind of exactly what I thought she would be, which is a, a compliment. I was expecting her to come in and to be uh, sort of like her writing. You know, very smart, uh, very funny, very honest. She's all those things in spades. And uh, she was here in Los Angeles on book tour in support of her best-selling debut novel, The Clasp, which is out there now in trade paperback from Picador. And uh, she made time to come over and sit down with me and have a conversation in extreme temperatures. And uh, I'm just really happy to share that conversation with you right now. Here she is. This is Sloane Crosley. And her novel, One More Time, is called The Clasp. <laughs> I can do a, I can't do an hourglass. You actually day. have a good radio voice. Thank you. You have a good voice. I appreciate that. Do you ever get that? I get the fact that my, um, well, not get as an understand, but receive. Yeah. Um, the compliment, I suppose, that my, I sound a lot like Laura Pepperin from Orange is the New Black slash that 70s show. Okay. Um, 
like I've, I don't get I look like a celebrity, but I've had people say that you know over the phone that I apparently sound like her. Okay. I don't. There's a little bit of a rasp. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a radio quality to your voice. I don't know too much. You know, smoking and drinking in the '60s. I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> it just yeah. You smoke? Not really. I I know what a cigarette tastes like. Yeah, I used to smoke. Every once in a while. Like, you look so wistful. I know that not everyone can see you right now. In fact, <laughs> I can only see you right now, but you have a very wistful look on well, your face. Well, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just a shame because it could be, it's just a shame that it's not really good for you. I'm glad I don't do it because it's, I mean, so, it's so unhealthy. I feel like garbage when I do it, but there's, right. I didn't, you know, enjoy a cigarette back in the day in my wayward youth. Well, I think you can take odd drag. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're the kind of person who can take odd drag. Yeah, I can Okay, well, I mean, you're, like, the, you're the envy of smokers everywhere, I'm sure, as, as am I, more or less, you yeah. know, where I just sort of, if the situation calls for it, you know, like, I don't know, church. Church. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yes, weddings. Right, weddings. Well, but it's like, you know. <laughs> ER I, rooms. I don't have time. I don't have time. And I, I also don't <laughs> You have, don't have time to take up smoking? I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm too busy. I'm like, I'm with kids. I'm never going to smoke in front of a, uh, my children. Of and then um, the other thing about it is that I don't have the the uh, the physiology or the, um, what do you call it, the fortitude. What's the word I'm looking for? Commitment? The constitution. Constitution. I don't have the constitution physically to withstand it. Like there are people right. who can like chain smoke an entire pack of cigarettes right. and still be like relative, feel relatively good. I would be a wreck. They're not though. It's a little bit like, well, any kind of addiction where, you know, your threshold goes up, you know, what you need to sort of upset your body yeah. becomes more extreme and there is a layer of gunk like along the cilia of their lungs which means that they can do that okay. you know if they stopped they would start coughing much worse than they do right now you're making for weeks me feel better that's right because they their lungs would be trying to heal and expel all that stuff yeah. that said I really want a cigarette. Now. Like that's, <laughs> this stuff, <laughs> you can smoke in the garage. This stuff always makes me. Um, it's like whenever I saw those ads as a kid that you know it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? And I think, why am I home? <laughs> I don't have children. I should be out. Yeah, right. Or you know, no smoking ads. I'm like, right, cigarettes. I yeah. forgot about those. Yeah, you know, back in the day, it they really to- are. I mean, this is not a newsflash, but they really are absolutely vile for you you do much better just eating whatever you want than the, smoking the thing i don't want. like about it is that you really don't get much from it like if i were getting right. high or i you know because i know you get a little bit of a buzz but come it's not it's marginal right if you were, well, yeah if you're really getting high or you know it's, it's getting you uh, you're hallucinating <laughs> some mm-hmm. sort of payoff it would make more sense but really all you're doing is killing yourself you're just breathing in smoke the payoff is to stop something from happening not to start it happening so when you get high when you do any other drugs it's to start i mean unless you're addicted to them it's to have an experience you're not already having right right? but i think if you're smoking you're just trying to fill a void in your soul yeah to take the edge off. again i just want a cigarette now (laughs) sounds great (laughs) well but you know what else i remember too like this is a thing about me when i was uh in my more social years like you're in college and you're at parties more often in your 20s uh I just remember being at those kinds of in those kinds of situations, and it would give me something to do. And then mm. it would also you'd go outside, you'd be inside, then you'd like go outside, and there'd be like a smaller group of people, all of whom were smoking, and then you could have something in common. Right. So socially, I miss it in that respect. I know exactly what you mean, and I mean now people have their phones, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. I, if I were go in college, outside and text, although that seems really dramatic. Excuse me, I yeah. have to go outside to take this text. Nobody goes outside; they just start texting. Right. But it's like you know, they, you see that you hear about these uh, parties where there's like you know, ten people sitting around, like everyone's on the on their own phone and no one's talking to each other. My friend Matt has a. Um, I don't know if you can call this an art form just yet or perhaps ever, but he has a, an Instagram series, a hashtag, if you will, um, called Lone Texter, where he just takes pictures of people with their faces illuminated by their cell phone in, in clubs and bars and restaurants. Yeah. And they're they're beautiful and they're sort of eerie, and he should just sort of find a way to print them all out as Polaroids and frame them, I think. It's like the new solitude. Right. Or the, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I'm totally that person. I went yeah. to it. I went to a Dodger game a couple of weeks ago. It was like, you know, some dads. They were like, let's get out. Let's go out. Dad's let's, going to a Dodger game. The game. It's like my dad's dream, although uh, wrong Dodgers, but yeah. Yeah. And so, but it was like, <laughs> I just was like, we, we all had the same impulse. It was like, we need to get away. We need to just go out and like be social. And we went to the game. It was great. And then after the game, we were like, let's go get one more drink, you know? Right. And we went to this bar and it was awful. Why? Not because of the company, but just because it was loud. Everyone felt like they were 10 years younger than we were. Uh, I couldn't hear myself think. I didn't know where to go. Am I am I just revealing myself to be? No, old? I think it's well. I've always been a little old before my time. I feel very firmly. I'm almost thirty eight, and I feel very firmly twenty seven. But I felt very firmly twenty seven when I was nine. Okay. It just seems to be sticking from both yeah. sides. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I've always been a sort of. Uh, premature curmudgeon i think and that stuff has always bothered me i had a friend from college who started a restaurant in new york city which is obviously already an incredible endeavor and he was successful at it um what restaurant let's give it a plug oh yeah hi (laughs) i forgot that this is other people are listening to this (laughs) yes (laughs) it's called fedora okay um and it's on west fourth in the in the west village and it's lovely but i will say and as much as I am plugging it, the food is delicious. The people who work there are delightful and welcoming. It's a great layout, great lighting. If you're into that kind of thing, the table. I do. I do like like the lighting concept at a restaurant has to be right. If it's too bright, no, it's great. I'm out of there. You would. It would. It's your dream lighting. You okay. Would, you would want to sleep and 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 die in in this restaurant. That's a little <laughs> too extreme. But um, the one thing is that the tables, and this is my. Um, me pretending I'm like a physics expert here, but the tables are about, I would say, three to four inches longer on either side than they need to be, which means that you're sitting just a little bit further from the person you're dining with perfect. than you normally would be. You would think it's perfect, but the problem is everyone has to shout a little bit or talk just a tiny little bit louder, Right, and therefore the din in the restaurant is... There's a lot of white noise and have to, it becomes I'm, a little bit loud. And what's yeah. weird is it shouldn't be loud. And my theory is, is that it's the tables. That's what it will see. I'm one of those people in restaurants depending. And it's also just the acoustics of the room, the way the room is built. Right. But if I'm in a restaurant and it's loud like that, I'm the guy who has to like put his hands up by his ears and like cup his ears to be able to hear. Oh yeah. Does that actually work? Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I don't do well in like lots of like, lots of like voices. It's hard for me to hear. Am well, I going to be deaf when I'm older? <laughs> I mean, probably. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm only 40. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not um, a medical doctor. Um, I like the emphasis on medical, <laughs> as if there's some other brand of doctor well, or degree. A, a doctor of uh, English? A doctor of literature. Yes. No, that's not true either. I don't have my doctorate. I don't, don't? Even, I don't have my master's. I don't have anything. Although I did, I taught um, 
narrative nonfiction in the MFA program at Columbia for, for Without one semester. Without a master's. Oh, yeah. They'll just let anyone out off do. the street <laughs> and do it. It's just an Ivy League school. That's it's all. Just, Ivy Schmivy. Hey, so let's talk about you as a writer. Okay. You've done a lot. I, I think so. Sometimes I think I have, and sometimes it feels like um, nothing. I think partially because I had a, a lovely, um, not just a day job, but a career for almost 12 years in working in book publishing. So I feel like there are sort of missing books in there. So wait, you were a publicist mm -hmm. for Random House? Yes, for Vintage, which is the paperback arm of Knopf. Okay, okay. Which is how you pronounce that. Yes, I know that. I learned okay, that. some people by, No, but by doing this show. <laughs> oh. Uh, these are the things that okay, I learned. That's good. why I do this show. Good. Just to learn how like all the different imprints fit inside the big conglomerate. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. You could have made a phone call, but I'm yeah. glad you had the show instead. <laughs> This is a, yeah, it's 400, more than 400 episodes. It's basically just one big, like, procrastination. Just to be, just to be able to say Jonathan Lethem, yes. not Lethem, <laughs> and Shabon. <laughs> um, so I'm, I've talked to writers on this program, including my, uh, uh, Melissa Broder, a friend of mine, she worked in publicity at, a, at an imprint. She was the publicist for my first book. Okay. So uh, I'm always fascinated by people who have worked in publicity and then go on to publish, mm -hmm. like whether or not that experience informed your, um, experience as a, as an author and whether it helped you like get publicity, did it help you like play that game to get coverage in certain magazines or review coverage? Like you, you sort of know who to contact, right? Well, certainly, but, um, it's a double-edged sword. It's not, I mean, listen, I, I, there's no, um, tiny orchestra that will be playing for me. Um, but at the same time, it's not what it looks like. So you do know those people. You definitely know who to contact, um, which can make you kind of, kind of a nightmare potentially for whoever has the misfortune to work on your book. Yeah. Cause you, you know, know, you, you know, know how the sausage gets exactly. made. Exactly. You know, too much. You need to be put down, like taken back to the back of the shed and just put down. Right. Um, but at the same time, no one in the media, wants to look like they're covering their friends. So it actually takes more and it is harder um, in some respect to get covered because you came from inside the house. And so with publicity, it's a like, lot of mixed metaphors in one explanation, <laughs> but, but it's like, if, uh, if it feels to me and correct me if I'm wrong, like from your experience, but like, it feels to me that if the big papers, like if the New York times uh, reviews a book, Mm -hmm. Then the smaller review sections tend to tend to fall into the line. You get more review coverage as like a domino it's effect. It's true in some ways. It's not. It's actually. I would say it crosses mediums because um, a radio producer will be more likely to interview you if you have a giant glowing review in the New York Times. A podcaster. A podcaster. <laughs> hypothetically speaking, <laughs> so hilarious. Um, but you know, it would be more likely to. But the way lead times work, even with newspapers, and there's so many books being published now, and there's less and less coverage, specifically after 2008, 2009, because the market crashed. Um, there was less money for companies that are not book publishing. There was less money to take ads out, and therefore there are less pages in magazines and newspapers. Everything just feels like it contracts. Tiny tiny like a, a little or domino effect like that um and so and it was already difficult you know it wasn't like you were just calling up terry gross and being like yo t <laughs> i actually can do that but <laughs> just because i'm i've got this author we found his book and everything you'll love it <laughs> like you know it's not like it was that easy how to do you get onto how do you get a, an author onto fresh air you've booked authors on yes fresh air. i have how do you do that well it was harder 
were um, it was always harder for paperbacks because um, it's not a news event. So something really has to have happened between the publication of the hardcover and the paperback. Um, either the book took off um, in a slightly belated way after the pub date, which is kind of rare. But it does happen. Yeah, it just happened with a little life. It's a really good right. example. I interviewed Hanya oh, on the show. She, she was great. She is wonderful, and she also used to work. There's a strange... So, okay, well, A, I don't know how you get on fresh air, so <laughs> I don't have to, you know, reach for it verbally. I can just cut that off there. Um, and then B, uh, you were asking before about the transition from publicity to becoming an author. Hanya used to work at Vintage. Oh, she, okay, that's right. There's a very strange, and it's normally, at least when I was sort of um, growing up, as in, you know, in college, thinking I wanted to work in publishing, I always had the idea that book editors were the ones who may or may not have a secret novel beneath the table. But I don't know what they put in the water at Vintage Books. But it was – Hanya and I just missed each other. But we have the same, had the same boss, and I know her. Um, so it was Hanya worked for Vintage Books. I worked for Vintage Books. A guy named Ethan Rutherford worked for Vintage Books who wrote a book called The Peripatetic Coffin and has been in Best American Short Stories. A guy named Paul Yoon who actually just got – I think he's now – associate professor um, at Harvard um, and published um, one, oh gosh, I'm going to mess it up. This is bad. Once the Shore, I think. Okay. And a couple of other books. A guy named Martin Wilson who published a young adult novel. And publicity departments are not that big. So it's... These are all people from the publicity department of Vintage? Yes. Wow. I'm not naming random publicists. Although Laura, you know, Laura Zygman was a publicist. Jennifer Gilmore was a publicist. Um, but no, these are... Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Did you want to be a writer when you set out to work in publishing, or did you just want to work around books and not really, did you not have like a defined feeling about what you wanted as a career? I wanted to be a writer, um, but not in a sort of nightmarish and therefore I can't photocopy anything way. Right. Um, which does happen in, in book publishing, you know, um, where a lot of people don't want to work in publicity. They want to work in editorial because it's closer to the romance of their literary dreams. But of course the nitty gritty of any job is, is not closer to anyone's romance. You have to sort of do it on your own either way. Yeah. Um, so in a way publicity was more helpful um, because every book I saw was getting published. So you are sort of, your mental state is, while it may be intimidated by the authors you work with, you know, everything you see is really good. Everything that you're infiltrating, that's infiltrating your brain is, is of a high it, it's quality. It's made it through the hoops. Exactly. It's gone through the gauntlet. 
Um, whereas everything you see in editorial is a lot of submissions that never even get published. Right. So, you know, it's really bad to look at that, at someone's manuscript and think, oh, well, if that could get published, I can get published. Like, why would you set that low bar for yourself? It's a little bit, it's a, a slightly more refined section. Well, and you publishing. also, you also get a, uh, a realistic view of what it is, what the, the mm-hmm. business of publishing is, which I didn't yes. have. I had this very antiquated, romantic vision of how publishing worked i had no idea like well, it, part of it still exists like if you think that you know sunny meta is having a who's the head of knoff is having a you know two martinis at lunch you're probably correct that, that still happens yeah yeah i mean i don't know if, if your vision i mean i think what's interesting about public publicity and for me as well as a writer is, was you know now being on the other side as well is realizing that you know authors aren't really built to do this to do what I'm doing now <laughs> with you. <laughs> You're doing great. Thanks. Yeah. But we're not really, as a whole, as a, as a people, um, you know, we're structured to do things in a tiny little dark room in a thankless way. This is a pretty dark room. This is actually pretty a very small. dark room. <laughs> I, would argue, I would argue that authors actually, in an intimate one-on-one or small conversation, are great. I think authors are not wired to do like big, most authors are not wired to do big, you know, crowded party social situations right well i think so maybe because it's just not crowded enough i tend to take off my glasses when i read if it's a smaller crowd of people because then i don't have to picture any of their individual faces but i can still read (laughs) okay what i'm reading but if it's a larger group it's i i work better with a larger group i find um being able to picture like 30 faces looking at me or or 20 faces looking at me and and worried that they're you know, I'm reading and they're they're not really concentrating. They're thinking about, you know, their grocery lists or their errands. They're texting. They're te- not, <laughs> not quite that bad. But they can't, you know, you forget what it's like to be read to. You know, you don't forget what it's like to be sung to, let's say. Like music is an unbroken thing that people like. They just like different kinds yeah. of birth. Same yeah. thing with art. But you do not, I mean, I, you're hopefully read to as a child if you don't have delinquent parents. And then it stops. Unless you really go to readings or, you know, go through a phase in high school where you're going to poetry slams or whatever like it audio is. Audiobooks. I don't know about you, but I didn't go to one I was not read to once from let's say eighth grade until college. I find it hard. I find it hard to follow. Yeah, exactly. In, and like, that's the and that's the fear of the person on stage, or it should be if they're you know How performative do you get? Like are you doing voices and characters? Because, like, <laughs> I mean to to not lose people. Do you right. feel a, a, an obligation to like really entertain or do you just give it more of a straight read and hope they're following or Well, I put I mean the nonfiction, so the two essay collections are my voice. And so um it's pretty easy to read those. But occasionally I get the sense that I'm just there's a truck. Sorry, this yeah, truck no, is going just, by. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, should I stop for the truck? No, it's all part but, of it. So, um, occasionally, I um, feel like I'm watching myself read, you know, or like, what, and and I'll suddenly just put the sort of emphasis on the wrong syllable, you know, yeah, just yeah. to watch myself read to get people to sort of, if I feel like I want to tell people to look alive, but. Um, it depends. I mean, I read the first two audiobooks myself, but for the novel... I like that, by the way. I, if, if the author can read his or her work with some degree of flourish. But, like, yes. nobody knows how to read a book better than the person who wrote it. One would hope. Well, except in terms of being... for the novel that I just published has hopefully not a prohibitive amount for those who are listening, but it has a little bit of French in it. Um, I can understand French fairly well. 
Um, I can certainly read it. I, it's, you, no one wants to hear me speak French. Right. And so I was actually very grateful. Um, also, the book is told from the perspective of two men and one woman. Um, and that shouldn't make a difference. Why but... don't you plug the book? Oh, sorry. <laughs> and it's called The Clasp. Yes. Whoops. <laughs> it's called The Clasp. Um, and it's a love triangle um, between uh, two 30-something men and one 30-something woman. Okay. Um, it's also got a sort of mystery Is it derived from real aspect. life? Were you involved no. in a love triangle? No, it was not. Oh, you're I don't not? think so. Oh, my still, gosh. There's still another time. question. Yeah. There's still time. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's sort of um, inspired... You know, I am a big fan of, let's say, Claire Massoud, and I'm a big fan of the Philadelphia story. And I like to think if if those had a baby, they maybe maybe would produce this. No, that's good. That's good to hear. In my wildest dreams. No, but that's good to hear. I feel like when you have, I, I feel like a lot of um, good books, good movies are born from a, like a real specificity of influence and mm. and and understand like a writer working to hybridize two loves of theirs well it's it's a it's actually even more than two there's, there's a lot of people in this romance yeah <laughs> hello it's very french, french more french than i might have let on <laughs> um but no it's it's basically what happens is is these three friends are sort of semi estranged from college and they fall back into their old roles the way you do with family if you go home for a weekend you turn into a 13 year old yeah um and they sort of feel like more should have happened with their lives than has um, and they also are unsure if these people that they've known for so long at that age you look at them and you know except for your very very close friends and even in those cases you might think okay are we family or is it one more phone call and we're going to let this go or never talk again yeah do you know it's weird it's, it's weird very how, strange it's, but it's weird how friendships dissipate yeah it's sad but it's, it's sad. like life goes like you know as life continues on you get busier it seems like it gets harder to keep track of people you're living in disparate locations you're not in a phase of life where you're as social as you once were, mm-hmm. or it seems harder. Well, to it's be not social. institutionalized. It's yes. not provided to you by college or maybe a workplace where you bonded with everybody. Maybe you've gone off and done something different, um, and you just you have to water that plant. That's you right. Know? Um, do, and do you do that in your real life? Are you a good plant waterer? I do. I think I was not a good plant waterer. There are some plants that I let die early. <laughs> I love how we're calling them plants. Let's just keep doing it. <laughs> makes Let's it, keep doing makes it. Makes it less painful. It to... makes it less painful. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, you killed the cactus. <laughs> Whatever. It's not a federal offense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so in the book, they're... Um, it's more of a friendship triangle, really, than a love triangle, but still... Um, Basically, you have Victor, who's this sad sap who um, I always describe him as Job-like because I just – it was even worse in the first draft where, I mean, I was having him fall off bikes and just everything was <laughs> terrible was befalling him. But he um, sort of doesn't get the girl, loses his job, it gets his apartment broken into. Um, his name, Victor, is meant to be ironic. Um, and then he's in love with a girl named Kezia who is actually – there's a big short story thread through the class where – Guy de Montpassant's The Necklace, if you know that story, um, comes into play and all of them become sort of entrenched in trying to find out whether or not the necklace um, that he wrote that, that – the necklace that he based that story upon is real. Um, so it becomes a little bit of – it has a Goonies quality that it takes on. But before that um, – not, not to reveal too much um, – but before that, the, the setup of the characters before they act um, – 
is Nathaniel is in love with Kezia, and Kezia's name... Kezia actually, is an interesting name. It comes, and this is what I was about to say before, it comes from a Catherine Mansfield short story called The Doll's House. Okay. So a lot of literary allusions. Exactly. It's, there's little Easter eggs for, for people who love specifically, not just literary, but specifically short stories, but it's a novel. Are you super well-read? When it comes to short stories. Okay. I, am I super well-read? I don't know, because I mean, some authors really are not, and, and some authors really are. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... There are... Um, I was talking with a friend the other month who um, was trashing this this woman who's a German author. Um, she's American, but uh, I think she's lived in Germany for a while. And he was saying, "Oh, she always mispronounces this author's name, like some German author. You know, she's such you know basically she's such Zink? a phony. Whoops." And she, <laughs> wow, this is great. She's such a phony. But I sort of came. I mean, the important thing is that I'm covering the identity of the person who said this. It's not really important that we cover that it's Nell. Um, and I. I thought, I don't even know who that author is enough to mispronounce the name. Yeah. Do you know? And yeah. I, I know that I'm supposed to be getting in this boat with you of, of judgment about this woman, but I, I you know. Who gets in a mispronunciation? I can't, I, can't, I can't do it, you know? And so I, so I haven't read. I mean, they're very like, um, you know, I've, all, I've read all the top tier Russian authors. Let's put it that way. Chekhov, Tolstoy. This is not hard. You um, like the Russians, you, but you are Russian. Russians. We talked about this before we, we came did. on. We did. Okay. We so did. Well, Russian. I like the French actually better, but I am, I am Russian. And a Francophile. I guess I'm a Francophile. You spend a lot of time there? Yes. I just don't consider... It's funny. I don't feel like I have... Um, I, I'm a fan of the French people. I'm a fan of I am the, too. the little layer of difficulty, the little sort of you know invisible passwords that they put up um, before they'll speak to you I, like I've a person. I've never had... Everyone always says, the French are rude, the French... De- I, no, I love the charming. French. Charming. They're charming. They're so nice. I charming never and nice. And I feel like as a New Yorker... Um, they remind me they are they are um, helpful and kind and smart in the way that New Yorkers are helpful and kind and smart. So I do feel a little bit like I found my people, not just in Paris in general, and in, in like rural France, same thing. You so how much like when have you been over there? You've like so for the book I went um, for research, which was quite wise. This book is not set in the outskirts of Duluth, so that right. was smart. Yeah. Um, but uh, as the short story, the necklace comes into the plot more and more and more and as it gets folded in um the author Guy de Maupassant also becomes a figure of interest especially to Victor because Guy was this sort of kind of terrible but brilliant womanizing guy who um wasn't sure what he was going to do was kind of aimless would like row miles and miles on the Seine um didn't he didn't wasn't he a thief am I misremembering something I don't think so but maybe you're just inspired by the plot of my (laughs) novel (laughs) there's there's a little bit um but he I mean he was didn't he break into the Louvre didn't he like as a prank maybe maybe it's possible I don't I don't think so, but it seems, by the way, if you, if you say the word prank and gay, then you're probably right. And I probably just don't know. I think it was something like that, but it's like, he used to dress up. He would dress up as a, um, as a woman to overhear conversations that women were having once, um, when he was in Normandy, he got sent a bunch of roses from a girl who, a woman who really liked him in Paris. And, um, they were dressed up as women. So, you know, the rose head would be the head of the person. Um, and she wrote a little note saying, you're missed in Paris. And he sent them back with their bellies stuffed with cotton with another note that said, all in one night. <laughs> that's key. He also died of syphilis and went crazy. That's so, and does. you know, so that's not great. Um, but he also, I mean, he had a, a mentor in Flaubert who was his mother's childhood friend. I mean, he's a really fascinating guy um, with a supreme amount of confidence and also... 
Uh, I mean, he would go up to people who he saw reading his book and hit on them, and it would work. It well, wouldn't yeah. be disgusting. So he's so the opposite of Victor that they become he, Victor becomes very obsessed with him. And as he's looking for this necklace, Victor basically decides to chuck his life, which is mostly non-existent, as we've established, um, and go to Normandy. Um, and so to do that, um, I thought, I want to go see where Guy grew up. I want to sort of follow his trail and, and see the house where he grew up. And um, so I've been to Paris a couple times, but that was really the first time I'd spent about a month um, in Upper Normandy. Um, and then I recently... You went in the summer? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a good great. time to go. Did you go to like great. Omaha Beach and stuff? That was actually really interesting. I was right... Um, my uh, road that I was on was called Windmill, Windmill by the Sea Road. Um, and the sea in question was Omaha Beach. Man, it is. A, it's intense. Yes, it's very intense. And you go and you realize what a total shit show um, it was in a way that you don't, that no war movie and no book can make you understand just because you think beach and everybody has a conception of, of beach. Um, but it's it's so far from, you know, the dunes or where, where the grass ends and the, and the sand starts and the water. I mean, really far, about a half a mile. And it's just like, it's just and carnage. there's nothing around. Yeah. There's nothing to hide behind. And the sand is, sand is incredibly hard. And there's just, which, which actually doesn't sound like that, but I somehow feel like if it was softer, there would be like at least some confusion, you know, like there could be scuffles and maybe someone aims for you and they miss your foot because there's, there's just nothing. It's like being on a, a football field parking lot. I would always say like, it's it always, crazy. I would just play dead. That's what I always think. Like if I were in war, I would just lie down and hope it would help. <laughs> well, well, Some you know, you do, do have, you have two kids and you have a nice career, but maybe <laughs> if you ever decide to change careers, don't enlist, do something else. <laughs> but it's just, you know, it's, it's really, you could just see with nothing there, how terrible it must've been. And that's I rare felt- for a historical site. Normally you see a tower, you find out, oh, people used to get hung from it and you're like, okay, I guess I can, that's bad. <laughs> I felt emotional. But you feel emotional. And then you go well, it's also the, being an American. And yeah, know. but I mean, just and in general, you go up to that cemetery, that, which mm-hmm. is a you know, beautiful location. There's like, lots of them. Yeah, but it's like, whew, it just sort of, it really hit home. With the me. nameless white crosses. Yes. It's beautiful. It's also strange because I brought um, a photographer friend with me when I lived there. Just to take just, pictures of me? Well, you? to split the house. Oh. Just to take pictures of me. Because <laughs> I bring a photographer everywhere. There's one sitting There's here one right sitting now. There's one sitting Shh, stand quiet. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, she wanted to go anyway, and it was it was obviously cheaper to share a house too. Yeah. This wasn't um, Airbnb in Normandy. We lucked out. We lucked out. It was a stunning, stunning home um, in this great little country house. But it was so weird because neither of us were in the present. But she was taking pictures of World War II stuff, and I was there for eighteen mm, nineties. That's what I was looking at. So every church I would look at, I would think. Well, when was it built? Who came here? Would Guy have come here? Should my characters go here? Um, and she would think, oh, that's where a guy parachuted down and got stuck on the spire. Right. And I'm just like, we're just looking at the very the same object in a very different way. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of interesting. Um, but then um, I've spent other time around around there in general, and I really like it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the history, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you, and you're, but you say you're your family's from Russia and exclusively or is you have other well they it turns out I, I just found this out actually last week that I have a, a great grandfather who was Romanian but Romanian can mean a lot when you go back that far it doesn't necessarily mean the Romania we know and love now um, and um, 
I think it's just regional. It's like Romanian with a U, you know. Uh, but mostly Russian. Yeah, mostly Russian. Russia? I think there's other stuff mixed in there. Um, I have not been to Russia. But it's strange because when I say other stuff, mostly people assume, oh, like German, Polish, things of this nature. Um, but I don't really have it. But my sister especially looks quite Asian. And... <laughs> We like to call ourselves your old trash because we're like, something happened way far <laughs> over, way far over in she Russia. She could be Scandinavian, though. Cause my wife uh, often gets uh, asked if she's Asian, and she is, like, Norwegian. And they have, like, really? the, yeah, the squint. Like, like people who are, like, black Irish, and I'm like, like Jennifer Conley, you know? Um, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's like, um, I don't know. And, like, I feel as a, I'm a total mutt, like, all over right. Europe, but it's mostly France and Italy. Okay. Um, I feel a sense of... Uh, connection yeah i've never been to russia i don't feel a huge sense i always wish i mean i i feel like there are there are writers um that i really admire who write i'm thinking of like gary steingart um you know or elif botman uh who write these amazing um you know travels in russia experiences about being russian and and they're also first generation though um if that you know and and so it's you know, I don't have that. I mean, I grew up in suburbia. Um, Where did you grow up? In White Plains. Okay. Um, just north of, of New York. And, I mean, that's a theme that, in a way, is both in the essays and the book, actually, of that that lack. You know, I mean, it's like, well, I can't make up a heritage I'm very connected to. Um, you know, the trail goes pretty cold after my great-grandparents. I don't really know that much about either side of my family. And I've tried, but there's not that much to know. Um uh, and then, I mean, there's interesting stories. Um, my grandmother uh, was engaged to Zero Mostel for a really long time. And I know it's crazy. And, and um, the other grandmother on the other side was this kind of loon. And my grandfather proposed to her um, when they were living in Toronto and were Toronto Jews from Russia um, in front of a wall of monkeys' brains because he was experimenting on them for medical school. Like okay. there's all there's color. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? There's yeah. that kind of color, but there's not that concrete heritage that I feel running through my veins. And so, I think you have a choice. You can either pretend to write about that not write about it or write about the lack of it. And I chose the third. You did. Okay. Yeah. And do you have a, any kind of literary uh, lineage? Like, do you have, can you trace your literary uh, interests back? Yeah. I mean, what's funny about it is that's part of the reason, like this novel seems like a departure from the essays, but in a way it's a long time coming, um, especially the short story aspects of it. Because, you know, some of the first times I fell in love with, with books and writing in general, um, I would say James Joyce was a big one. Um, Chekhov was a big one. The James Joyce stories, Dubliners. Yes, Dubliners. Okay. Um, And not even the, I mean, not Araby. I mean, excuse me. Yes, Araby, not necessarily the dead. Although the the dead is pretty good. Yeah. I'm sure James Joyce is concerned about what I think of it. (laughs) I feel like it's pretty good. Um, But I just, but then I really um, got into it in high school and college um, where I started reading more. I mean, I started reading every short story in The New Yorker every week. I still remember sort of where I was when I read In the Gloaming by Alice Elliott Dark. If you ever read that story, it's amazing. Same thing with Michael Cunningham and White Angel, all that stuff. Um, and I mean, I had read Fitzgerald. I had read Hemingway, but not in a way that got into my bones. Um, and then I think maybe Dorothy Parker, Laurie Moore, these things started to hit me more and more. And then, you know, all of Jane Austen. And so I'm sort of a mutt, like you are. Um, 
genealogically. <laughs> but, but genealogically, <laughs> but I am when it comes to literature. What is it um, about the short story? Like, you know, you wrote a novel, but you love short stories as a right. reader. What is it? Just that you can digest Why didn't them? I just write short stories? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's a different art form. Um, I don't think it's a shorter novel. It's funny. Someone asked Alice Monroe once, who's really flirted, just really is right on the edge with writing a full-length novel um, or a novella. I mean, she's got 80-page short stories, that lady. Yeah. Um, but I just, I find them so beautiful and sad, even the funniest ones. And I find them such an amazing, digestible snapshot of life and the skill, the the economy that you have to use. Not that you want to read a novel that's got a 12-page description of an oak tree, but you really can't do that in a short story, right. unless that's somehow the short story. Yeah. Have you ever um, have you ever, you've written short stories? Yeah. I mean, I have written tiny little things for, you know, I wrote one thing for McSweeney's, um, but they're more humor pieces. And then, I mean, in college, I wrote I wrote short stories, and then... Where'd you go to school? Connecticut College. Okay. It's tiny. Yeah. New England. Um, and... Yeah, I might go back to it. Um, but you might I th- go back to Connecticut College or you might go back I to... I might write- go back to Connecticut <laughs> College. I'm Get like, why degree? don't I have a beer koozie with my <laughs> college on it? So weird. Our mascot was the camel, so it's got so there's some interesting swag you can get from Connecticut College. Wow. Um, but no, I, um, I, might, I, I can see myself doing a novel in stories, something like that. Are you working on one? Maybe. Can you reveal... I just did. You just did. We're breaking news here on the Other People podcast. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Kind of, yes, actually. That's cool. So, I mean, I have another book of essays coming after after this, but then there hopefully there will be an after that as well. You're prolific. Well, I, you know, there's a great Dorothy Parker quote where, you know, that I'm going to butcher which one should never do to a Dorothy Parker quote, but something like, you know, why, why write? And I think she answered for, for want of money, dear. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And there's a certain unglamorous aspect. But um, you work hard. I think I do. What do you, what's your schedule? Well, right now I'm promoting the paperback and, and obviously in the greater Los Angeles area, which makes it kind of hard to write when you're not home. <laughs> yeah. Although Joyce Carol Oates like, writes in her I, hotel room when she goes even. home. I can't even. It's I think she much. has waterproof paper. She writes in the shower. Yeah. She's crazy. She's underwater while it's Unbelievable. Well, she's a huge runner as well, and I'm pretty sure I can almost see her with like you know, bumpy handwriting. I can see her with a notepad when she runs. I, I wouldn't be even, surprised. I get it like two galleys a year. I get it's two, amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And while some are better than others, none of them are bad. They're all really good. It's that's, but that's like a, that's hypo. Is it called hypographia or whatever? Like hmm. there are writers who have that where it's like, yeah, a, an, in, like an incredible. But they're normally impulse. it's like, um, like Rex Stout or Anthony Trollope or something like that. It's it's not there. It's normally a series. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't or something. I mean, Stephen King can crank out books like nobody's business a lot. I feel like genre writers. Yeah, can but his pace is just really good. That's why I feel like um, there are certain people who just have a great pace. Um, I think Zadie Smith has a great pace. Stephen King's more frequent than Zadie Smith. But where I just feel like why does Zadie Smith have a great pace? Because it's not every five seconds, but I adore her writing and pretty much everything she's ever written. She um, makes it count. And she makes it count, but she doesn't do it so infrequently. Yeah. Like Donna Tartt, also very talented, also, you know, fantastic, horrible pace. What is that, 10 years between every book? That's perfect for me. (laughs) That's all I need. (laughs) It depends. I mean, it's perfect if you think 
there are only so many books that you have the bandwidth to absorb if you're just thinking about, okay, what's the book I need to read right now? There can't be the book every two weeks. Yeah. It's overwhelming. It's exhausting. It starts to make you feel bad about yourself, piles up. Um, but if you're actually a fan of someone and you're plugged in and waiting for the next thing they're going to produce, right. it's good. Well, how, often, how much do you read? I read a lot. Um, I... I tend to read, I mean, I just took a, a I'm going to start reading a lot more because I just took the hot type gig at Vanity Fair. Oh. Alyssa Chappelle is leaving after oh, about is. 22 years. Oh, wow. Um, and I, you know, there are uh, almost 30 books on that page. Uh, so obviously I will not be reading every single one and it, it really only requires, it's more of a recommendation page than a review page. Yeah. But I'm going to actually squeeze some, some review some reviews in there. Well, congratulations. Um, thank you. How I'm did you excited. Get that? They just picked they asked you? me and I said, yes, I would like to do that. And you've, but you've worked as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Also. I, I mean, I write for the New York times book review. Um, and I've also done, um, a little bit of everything, mostly essays. I mean, I've written a lot for, um, the times and, and different magazines, personal essays. A lot of them never go into the books. Um, so the books are always brand new, like, I don't know, David Sedaris has a really good gig where, you know, his books were always already published in The New Yorker or somewhere where, you know, as some or GQ or Esquire, where they've given him a lot of room. Um, and so he can just really cut and paste them into the this lovely collection of, of you know, essays and then presto. But for me, they're speci- they can't be repurposed because um, they're, they're too short. Uh, but I've done, I don't know, I, I've inter- I interviewed The Strokes once. How was that? I, uh, awful. Yeah. Well, they weren't awful, but they are, it was awful because I took it too personally. They weren't getting along at the time and there were five of them or are five of them, which starts to feel like a small army when you're interviewing a band. Like who, there who, might who, be 20 be like, of them. Who do you ask? Like, who are you talking There's to? There's so many and it's, it's, well, they weren't really talking to each other. So I interviewed them all separately. <laughs> so that's about seven. No. Oh. So that's about seven hours of tape. Uh, for per, per person. Oh my God. Do you know? Yeah. And so it's just, and they, at the time, I think they've since sort of reconciled, but at the time they were going through sort of a, a rough patches, you know, Julian at one point, Casablanca said, you know, if we met now, I don't know if we'd be friends. Oh. And he's actually my exact same age, I think down to the day. And they are all roughly my same age. And so I was watching this thing that had been such a hallmark of my early year, years in New York, especially like 2001, 2000, 2002, and you have a crush on any of the guys in the band? No. No. Well, I really liked Fab. Okay. Yeah. Like, as a human. Oh, you um, did? He seems yeah. like the, he seems genial. He's like a puppy dog. Yeah. I mean, a smart puppy dog. He's like a puppy dog. Um, and I, I also like them all. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Julian just because he's hard to crack. Yeah. But that's not really my job in that scenario. You know, his, his job is not to be my friend. His job is to answer my questions and I've only known him for five seconds. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be best friends with everyone you interview. <laughs> you don't? Uh oh. Oh shit. <laughs> There's a lot of people back in your house. But yeah, so but it's a so it's been sort of varied. But I was the reason why I find it found it upsetting is because I felt like I was watching something that meant a lot to me personally sort of fall apart. Maybe that's honestly and not to not to be too heavy handed about this, but it is a way what the book is about, what the clasp is about as well. Like these yeah. friends that were about 10 years out of college or what would have been college for them. Um, and just taking stock of their life. And it's not, it's funny. Some of the people with the book will think, Oh, 
And it's always said in a nice way. So I, I'm not saying anything. I'm not complaining. But it's strange to me when reviews will say, oh, this is a really great um, encapsulation of the millennial generation. And I just that word had not crossed my mind while I was writing it. I thought, well, I'm writing about 30-year-olds, not those 30-year-olds. <laughs> but that's, you know, it's, what it is. But it's applicable. It's applicable. Yeah. I mean, you know, and uh, I think all of us go through it. it. It's not something that I ever... It's, I don't think it's something a lot of people, myself included, envision when you're in your 20s or you're in college. You're, those, are, those friendships are so intense mm-hmm. and so meaningful. And a lot of them still are. It's not like all of my college yes, friends. I are, have very good friends from college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like there are a lot of people you lose touch with. And, there, mm-hmm. and it's not even a situation where there's love lost. You know, it's like, boy, these people still mean a lot to me. I just never really right. get to talk to them because neither of us have been able to water the plant to continue right, our right. metaphor. But um it's not something I envisioned. And then it, it sort of happens in life. And uh, I'm always, I always have a lot of admiration for people who are really good at cultivating friendship. I think it's a really important skill. It's something I wish I was better at. Um, I Do need you to- think also having a family and, and kids, it makes it, it doesn't necessarily make it hard, but I wonder if it limits the pool to other parents. No, I mean, it, it can only by, only because that you, you have obligations as a parent, taking your kid to camp, taking right. your kid to school, taking your kid to this, to that. Those are the people that you most often intersect with who are your own age. Um, but it, it also, you know, parenthood sucks up a lot of your free time. And that time is what you would usually use to talk to friends or go out right. with friends. And so it does. I mean, it definitely limits you. I have friends who are extremely good at it. And I'm amazed. Um, but I think also what's happened is... Do they have kids? They do, but they had them slightly later. So they grew up... We had our grew kids later. Up, <laughs> oh, well, I don't know what you're... But, like, <laughs> but they grew up, uh, by which I mean, you know, spent, you know, up until like 36, 37, um, seeing different examples of how to be a parent yeah. from their contemporaries, not right. from their own parents. That doesn't count. Just from, you know, how to do it in the modern world that we have... Um, with you know the same peer group and the same pressures and the same distractions and they're so good at it that my, my, I have a friend who's almost too good at it where I'm like you know I know that you have a daughter <laughs> <laughs> do you ever take care of this child? do you ever take care of this no but she's like she never she um I, I usually walk away from hanging out with her both delighted because I love her but also feeling slightly guilty and I think oh gosh do we only talk about me you know, if I, if I read a transcript of that, of that coffee date, would I be sort of appalled at my own behavior? Cause she just won't. And then she's gotten better about it, but I think she was so afraid of being that person who could only talk about their kid or lost all her friendships once she had a kid. And I think just a healthy level of paranoia going into it. Yeah. Helps. That's a good, that's a good level of yeah. paranoia. I also think it is, it sounds to me like she's a good friend. Somebody she's who, wonderful. somebody who, um, when they show up to hang out with you asks about you. Yes. I mean, and that's true. But I mean, friendship doesn't necessarily have to work that way. And the other side of that, and again, this is part of what I was exploring both in the book and in my life is the, the other side of that is when it becomes a tit for tat scenario Mm. where, you know, you're just sort of banking something. You're like, well, I was really there for you when, you know, your boyfriend broke up with you or when you lost your job and now it's my turn. (laughs) It doesn't really work like that. I mean, like not, a, not like in a one-for-one one way. Yeah, but, you but do there take are people who keep sh- track. You know? sh- yeah, well, that, you know, who, want, who wants to be friends with no, that? No, it's exhausting. <laughs> well, it's exhausting to think, oh, gosh, you know, if I don't go to that person's, you know, niece's bar, bat mitzvah or their reading or whatever it is because I just can't go, am I going to be in the hole? Yeah. 
you know? Well, here's something that's that, an unpleasant feeling. Let me share you some, I want to share with you some tedium from my own experience, my Please. own life. Yeah. <laughs> like this is the sort of thing that I can, cause I, it's, I find that not only is it hard to maintain friendships as you get older because you live in disparate locations or you're busy with whatever you have going on in work and life, but it's also harder to form new friendships that have the same solidity of the friendships that you made when you were younger, mm-hmm. you know, like to really make a good buddy in your late thirties, early forties like you know starting from scratch doesn't happen all that often it's really hard because it's also hard i'm like how do i pick up some woman um but yeah it is hard um unless again like an institution is providing that person so Uh you're working on a project together right you have something you know and you start to see that almost lends some dimension some texture to the friendship that just the pure friendship wouldn't have because you get to see that person operating in another capacity, you know, and and their their creative mind or or their logistical mind. And that sort of helps make up for the fact that you haven't known them since you were seven. Well, so, okay. So here's the tedium. Mm. I did something social with, uh, some, my wife and I did something social with some people that we know through our daughter's uh, school. And then afterwards, cause I really enjoyed it. I I really liked them and I had this good time and I sent them a a thank you email. Mm -hmm. And I was like, thank you so much. I had a really good time. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. <laughs> you sound and, like a horrible person. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> and then I sent it and I didn't hear back. And then I was talking to my wife. I'm like, I, I want to be friends with people, but they, and I, I'm like, D- I guess they don't have an obligation to respond to a thank you note, but if they really did enjoy it, wouldn't they have said, yeah, we had a good time too. Take the bait. And, you know, but it, and so I started to obsess about it and then I'm like, oh, fuck it. People are busy. It's nice that you send a thank you note. Just let it go. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know exactly what you're saying. Well, you also, it's, it's, it, it feels, I mean, it feels the same way as dating probably used to feel where you have a really good time with someone if you meet them organically and you're like, well, are you just being nice and charming or are you really interested? You know? And you're like, I guess I'll reach out. Is that weird? If we now extend, we met at a party, do we extend this to just the two of us? Yeah. Um, and it feels the same way. Um, like how human is this exchange? Like like, even like romantic considerations aside, it's like you can have these really like uh, genuine interactions with people. And then it's just like, okay, bye. Mm -hmm. Which is what this podcast is. (laughs) 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 That's to happen, like, you know, repeatedly. It's it's just, well, (laughs) you set yourself up for it, really. Um, But yeah, it's really hard to figure out where to fit those people in your life. At the same time, I feel like it's good to have a mix. I am dubious of people who only have their college and high school friends. Yeah. And I, because I feel like, what have they been doing in the world? You know, except for being really safe. And, and are they not charming? Are they not interactive? Why can they not, you know, meet new people? I'm also dubious of people who don't have a friend older than three years old. You know, I don't mean that as in three, a three year old though. That would be funny. Oh, but, <laughs> that's what I thought you meant. No, I was like, I was like counting. I'm dubious like, my of daughter's friends five. Three. My daughter's five. No, no, no. <laughs> who don't have, um, friendships Deep, that long are older. That, yeah, exactly. Cause I think, you know, why has this always gone bust? You know, why can you not hold on to a friendship for more than three or four years? Some people are really good at life. They really <laughs> are. They, but I'm really, I, I look at certain people like. The way they are able to manifest friendships, the way they are able to socialize, the way they're able to perform professionally, they're just fucking good at it. Well, I think what you're talking about is balance. I don't think they're necessarily more charming or more likable um, than you are. 
But I they mean, might have some sort of they might have some sort of gift or instinct or I don't know what it is. Do you ever do you ever have friends know. like that where you're just like God? You just got it all figured. No, out. No, all my friends are delinquents, so I actually okay. I don't. I need to hang out with them. I don't just to feel better about yourself. <laughs> yes. Please don't tell them that's. But I could be. I could also be conjuring this. I could be conjuring this. But it's like I sometimes can feel uh, infantilized. Like you know, I I will make myself feel infantilized because mm-hmm. something like. You know, I'm struggling just to like get by and like make sure my kids are okay and do this. And then people are like throwing like elaborate parties and like they're. I don't need to tell you. I assume that this is 90% what it looks like from the outside. They have fissures in their life and their relationship. They're just different than the ones that you have. Okay. That's why you don't see them. Okay. Good. You know, you don't see them because you think, oh, they're doing X thing better than I am, and probably you're right. Sorry. However. God knows what else is going on that you don't know about that comes naturally to you that you don't even think of as an effort. Um, you, you don't. It's not a problem to be fixed for you. This this comes naturally to me. Well, they, there's absolutely no way <laughs> that those people could do it. Yeah, yeah, or would want to, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but you know, so it's just it's it's it's. But it, that's such easy advice to dole out. It doesn't stop me from, you know being jealous of people or feeling, um, I mean, especially if you are, you know, I don't have kids and I feel like, Oh, there should have been another extra novel that I don't have. And maybe I should have more money than I do. Or, um, maybe I should have been to more countries than I've been to. Um, although that's pretty low down the list compared to whether or not, you know, you're going to die alone. Um, (laughs) but like, but still all these things you start thinking, am I behind? That's the word that comes up a lot. At least, not in a, an actual way, not in like a CNN crawl, like across my brain, like like a news crawl. Am I behind? Am I behind? Am I behind? Yeah. But I feel like if I were to articulate it, that would be what I think. Um, well, that's, a, that's like the Gore, Vidal, the Gore Vidal line, like uh, envy is the central fact of American life. I don't know. It's, it's, it, he always has like these yeah. like pithy quotes that are like really cold. You know, oh, like, like whenever know. a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Like you, you laugh because right. I think there's a part of it that... My en- my the the book of my enemy has been remaindered, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it's like you know, there's a there's a grain of truth in it. I don't know if I necessarily 100 percent agree, but when you talk about falling behind, I think that there's a lot of that in my life. I think there's a lot of that in adult life, maybe in American life, maybe just in life in general right. and literary life for sure. Like I don't have enough books published. My books aren't published by the right people. They're not oh, re- well. Also, the the pure version of that, just to interrupt you quickly, is is are they they not the, are these the best books I can write? Are these good enough? Yeah. And that's when you feel that's the behind that you should feel, not these external. Right. Do I? What's the number? You know what? Right. What? What's underneath the also buy at the front of my next book? Do you have a vision for your whole career as a writer? I mean, or is is it really one book at a time, or have you thought holistically and long term about how you want this to go? Oh, that is a good question. I sort of vacillate. You know, I don't have a plan written down. I don't have like a five-year plan. I don't have a 15-year plan. Um, hopefully it involves more cheese and trips to Normandy. gin and cats. And, <laughs> yeah, and trips to Normandy. Um, but no, I just, um, I, I, I'm, I think the part of me that used to have a day job and is still at my heart, a sort of nice girl from the suburbs who believes in the 401k that I don't have <laughs> um, anymore, <laughs> um, I, I'm just go as hard and fast as possible. Basically take every opportunity, you know, I, um, I'm adapting the clasp for, 
um, Universal. I was going to say, your, your books, more than one of your books has been optioned for film. Yeah, well, the first one was optioned by HBO for series, and yeah. it got really far. I mean, I wrote the pilot. I, they flew me out a bunch of times. All right. Um, which was the first time I had ever... Um, I flew first class and was hey. I was so excited, um, but I had just been going... I had just gone through a really, really bad breakup, and I was upset and I, I, you know, that kind of upset where you can't eat, which is sort of rare for me. Um, and I just couldn't eat the food and I couldn't eat the, the cookies. And I just was <laughs> so mad at this guy <laughs> for tarnishing what I was sure would be the only experience like this and still is one of the <laughs> only experiences like this, but they kept bringing me out and then, you know, it's wonderful at first. And then you think, okay, what's going on? Like kind of shit or get off the pot. And they, they got off the pot. Hollywood. Yeah, and it's fine. And actually, I then continue to have a wonderful relationship with them, though, which is not what normally happens. I'm not that person who's um, – I have one or two guy friends who I've dated that were now actually legitimate friends to the point where I would set them up with someone. I mean, really, we've breached that, the that's final – That's rare. I, they're great. I mean, I love them. But um, – these are, these are boyfriends from your youth? Yeah, but that's the thing. Is that's it sort thing. of calcifies now. I don't think that would happen. Yeah. But I um, – uh, Oh, yes. But I feel that way about HBO where... You'd set HBO up, HBO up on a date. Yeah, yeah. I would set HBO up on a date. <laughs> and I think they would set me up on a date. And the woman I worked with who optioned the book, I then actually wrote another pilot for them um, that, I mean, I was not surprised didn't go. But she then went on to produce Game of Thrones. Huh? And I had this historical comedy idea that I went to her with. And so we worked on that together. And now, unfortunately... It becomes like a sort of comedy think tank that doesn't go anywhere when your pilots don't don't go. But it's such a pleasant experience, and I'm really proud of that it exists. Yeah. Um, and so no one optioned, how did you get this number? I don't know why, but they didn't. There's still time. There's still time. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and then, yeah, for the class, Universal bought it, and they asked me to, to write it, which I was really thrilled by. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I have no idea. I now know better than to just think oh well that's it it's getting made yeah no it's who cra- knows it's a, um, it's a crazy market it's a crazy right. business and everything and, until it's like on the screen until it's on the screen it doesn't matter but it's nice to work with people like there's no point in writing a pilot or, or really doing anything um that you don't enjoy while you're doing and might not work out yeah. Well, at least they're paying you for it. Right. And is there that anybody, is there, are there any attachments? Like you have a star? I have a producer. A producer. Um, a woman named Helen Estabrook, who oh, yeah. also produced Whiplash. Um, she works Juno. on Casual. She worked with uh, Jason Reitman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and she's, she's wonderful. And um, yeah, but again, I mean, I'm the one who has to, to write it, which is strange adapting your own material because you're, you're very close to it. Yeah. Obviously. And so you got to take it apart a little bit. I mean, it's not the same yeah. deal. But the lucky thing is, for me at least, is that the novel is told from the perspective of three different people. And so there's something that I've discovered I've been able to do, which is move them around like a shell game. I'm making a hand gesture, but the shell game hand gesture. Um, I know it well. I know it well. Um, I move them around a little bit um, and be a little harder, I think, with my work than uh, perhaps other people might be with theirs, only because I do have the some... TV screenwriting experience, um, and I also am comfort- deferential to this world that I don't know as well. I was going to say you're comfortable with the fact that it does change a little bit. I think some yeah. authors can have like this really strong sense of fidelity to the book, mm-hmm. and it's like no, 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 no. Like it's it's got to change. Yeah, and there is a big thing that changes, but it changes for the better. I mean, Helen and I were discussing it at some point, and you know, she said, "Well, what do you think about making this change?" And she detailed what it was, 
and I sort of put my head in my hands and she was nervous because, you know, it's my work. And she said, Oh God, you know, you hate it. And I said, I lifted my head and I said, no, no, I just really think I should have done that with the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an opportunity to fix things. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's funny too, because, uh, there's something I think more rigid, there's something more rigid about a screenplay in terms of its structure. Like, and it's, so it kind of forces your hand Mm -hmm. and that can Have you done a lot? Uh, not a ton. I mean, uh, I wrote a television pilot that got bought by MTV. Okay. So I've been through the process. I've, I've, I think that's I met, great. I think I met with Helen Estabrook years ago. Oh, I've done the whole bottled water, you know, tour. There's so a I, lot of, bo- yeah, this is a well hydrated town. <laughs> it really is. Say what you will. We're in the desert. We're in the desert. But I, <laughs> and like, it's funny cause I always take the bottle. Like as like, me even, too. even if I'm not thirsty. Oh yeah, of like, course. I'll take the bottle. Like, of I'm course. Gonna, I'm, prob- I'm probably not going to get anything else out of this meeting. It's the same part of me that when I'm buying like mozzarella cheese in the supermarket, we'll buy the, because you know, they do it by the pound and we'll buy the thing that says $4 and seven cents instead of $4 and 37 cents for no reason. Like what is, who does that help? Just grab a piece of yes. cheese and yes. put it in your basket <laughs> like a normal grown up human being <laughs> who pays uh, rent. <laughs> do you have, you, you prefer books to screenwriting or do you have, do you, do you parse it that way? Is it- I think I prefer books, but it's only because I don't know screenwriting as well. You seem I, like a, you mm. seem very funny. You're like the Dorothy Parker. Like I, you have Thanks. a little bit of that to you. Oh, well, Don't thank you. Think? you. I mean, is that how you conceive of yourself? I mean, well, you're, you're backing me into a horrible corner where I have to say <laughs> something nice about myself and I absolutely refuse to do it. Um, I, um, but are you often, re- I like to think, uh, I don't have the quip gene that you're, she has. Okay. I mean, you have, she's you have wit. The, yes, but she's like, I would never in my life, I will never produce. You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think <laughs> it will never happen. Yes. Um, and I don't even have a kitchen table. Forget a round table. I'm sorry. (laughs) See, that's the kind of terrible joke that prevents me from being the second coming of Dorothy Parker. I get it now. It just took me a second. Yeah. You have to consider your audience here. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Um, where do you, you live in New York city? I do. I live in the West village. I lived on the upper West side for a long time, which was interesting. especially when I lived there, it was all old people. I felt like I spent my entire youth not surrounded by my peers. Yeah. Um, but I could walk to a random house through Central Park and nobody, nobody could take that away from me. It was so great. I like the Upper West Side's beautiful. It's gorgeous, but it's just, you know, baby strollers are us. Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, you'd be fine. <laughs> You're kind. But I, I um, and then I moved to Chelsea and then I moved to the West Village. And I mean, it's, it's crazy. I spend most of my time in Brooklyn. Almost all my friends live in Brooklyn, but I yeah. choose to live in a more expensive version of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Why aren't you moving to Brooklyn? You're resisting. I'm resisting. I mean, I... I don't know. I mean, you would think the same person who buys the slightly smaller blob of mozzarella cheese (laughs) would also want to move to Brooklyn. Um, But you'd be incorrect. Um, We need more. We need need writers to stay. You got to hold out. There's no one in my name. It's like me and Calvin Trillin holding down the fort. There's nobody down there. Do you guys know each other? Uh, Yes, I do. do. I do. I mean, not we don't hang, but I I know him. Um, But I... I love Manhattan and it's my home. And I also at this point feel like there's something a little anti-establishment about moving to Manhattan or sticking to it. You know, I mean, it's like, I love the busyness of it. I love that, you know, even in the West village, which is just a piece of white bread with brownstones on it, you know, even in the West village, there's diversity, there's weirdness, there's people coming in from everywhere. Um, there's a heartbeat to it and an energy that I actually like. Yeah. And I understand 
but I also need to get away from it occasionally. That's come why I went Angeles. to Normandy. It's why I come here sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll write for Jags somewhere else in Hudson, New York, somewhere else, or a friend's house, um, or, you know, a writer's retreat. But um, to, to live in, I actually, I actually enjoy having that energy to bounce off of and even to be annoyed by because great comedy comes from annoyance. Yeah. You gotta be, and you gotta you know, be a peaceful there. cabin is going to do nothing for my nonfiction. It might do something for my fiction. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's comedy to be mined in like the misery of solitude. Sure. The of, of course <laughs> there is, but I just, you know, I've, you can only get so far with, you know, I mean, there's enough that you do that's solitary even when you're with people. Yeah. When you're, that you don't need. I'm texting that. while Sloan is talking right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just dove into my phone. <laughs> um, well, it's such a delight to talk with you. So nice. I'm Thank glad you we for had having the opportunity. me. My wife is a big fan of yours. Oh, really? I was like, I'm going to talk to love Sloan Crossley. And she was like, oh, well, I love her books. Well, tell her I said hi. I mean, I, the laws of time and space can't allow this greeting to happen at the same time. But <laughs> tell her I retroactively said hi. <laughs> All right, Sloan, thanks, and best of luck on the rest of your tour, and Thank best you. of luck with the novel and stories. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, there you have it. Sloan Crosley, go get her novel. It's called The Clasp. It's available now from Picador in trade paperback. And you can find Sloan online at sloancrosley.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at askanyone. And uh, she also, I believe, has a Facebook page. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app. Do you have the app? Uh, you should get the app. The app is free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Uh, it's you know you just you go get the app wherever you get your apps. You get the app on your device. When you do that, the most recent fifty episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent fifty episodes are always free. New episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and then and then. Uh, if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting available anywhere you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for an other people premium subscription right there within the app. It is as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, more than 400 episodes, uh, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Amy Bender, Susan Orlean, Sheila Hetty, Ben Marcus. The list goes on. David Shields, Eric Larson, Heidi Julevitz, Edwidge Dantica. So uh, go get the app. The app is free. Sign up for premium. That's almost free. Great way to support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Oh, God. The music is already over. Usually I try to synchronize uh, the music and the closing uh, commentary. But now I'm just adrift in silence. Please remember that Dostoevsky spent four years as a convict living in a hard labor camp in Siberia and that Elizabeth Barrett Browning's son slept in her bedroom until her death when he was 12. That's it for now. Uh, thanks again to Sloan Crosley. Go get her novel, The Clasp. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I appreciate that. And uh, I will uh, talk to you next week, if that's okay. I'll be back next week. Hopefully right now, while these uh, episodes are rolling out, and when I'm in this weird period of limbo where I, the podcast is sort of homeless, hopefully right now I'm arranging for a space to record. That's basically what I'm up against. I have until uh, essentially the middle of August, I think, before uh, we hit the wall. 
and then we're truly in uncharted territory. <laughs>